This special episode of Snap Sessions is a celebration of North Coast artist and musician John Chamberlain, featuring some of John's music and the reminiscences of people who knew and loved him. Memories of J.C., an 80th birthday tribute to John Chamberlain. John Chamberlain was a Mendocino treasure who played with the Horace Bedortis, who you are listening to right now, the Mark Levine Review, Cat Mother, the Hepcats, the Greenwood Sidemen, the Hit and Run Orc, Lenny Lax, Antonia Lamb, Franny Leopold, and Los Cumbayeros, and a variety of other Mendocino area bands from 1969 until he passed away in 2013. He also made poster art and signs for literally dozens of other bands, theater groups, and businesses across the North Coast. John Chamberlain was a hippie cultural icon, an illustrator and guitar player who colored our community picture and enlivened our musical background for over 40 years. It's time for Snap Sessions to salute John, who contributed to the musical and artistic imprint of Mendocino perhaps more than anyone else and who would have turned 80 this month. Cause the Cuyahoga River Runs right through the middle of Cleveland Catches fire periodically <laughs> Goes smoking through my dreams Burn on the big river John Chamberlain was born in Cleveland, Ohio in September 1941, just three months before Pearl Harbor was attacked and the United States entered World War II. His family hailed from Alabama and Canada, and he was proud of both. Early on, John showed artistic skills, and he ended up studying at both Ohio State University and at Carnegie Tech, where he reportedly excelled in graphic arts. Sometime in the early 1960s, he ended up in the advertising biz at the prestigious Batten, Burton, Durston, and Osborne Agency on Madison Avenue. A graphic artist hits the big time in the Mad Men era. By the early 1960s, BBD&O were responsible for such ad campaigns as Us Terryton Smokers Would Rather Fight Than Switch, Ring Around the Collar, and You're in the Pepsi Generation. John's talented technique was involved in graphic art production for some of those ad campaigns, but somehow it just wasn't right. Judy Frank had known him since his college days. He just didn't like it. It it was not a fit for him. He was a beatnik. John was never a hippie. He was always a beatnik. And uh, he just wanted to hang out in the village, and I think he must have met Catmother during that period. So he... He was just ready to leave. 
He didn't want to do that anymore. But he still had the tweed jacket and the khaki pants. The 1960s were going on all around John while he was working on Madison Avenue. According to a John Chamberlain story I remember, apparently one day he heard a roaring, screaming crowd of teenage girls outside his skyscraper work window. They were cheering for the Beatles, who apparently were about to exit a hotel someplace nearby. As J.C. looked out the window of his office on the umpteenth floor of BBD&O, he must have thought, what's that going on out there? He realized it was the Beatles coming out of a building nearby and being stampeded by teenage girls. And John thought, I think I'm in the wrong business. With the 60s going on, John was in the mood for change. Alan Callis and Greg Hillman conjecture on what may have been going on for music-loving J.C. I do know that he, he started hanging out at the Café Wa. You know, there was that period of time, especially in the mid-60s, when people went from the, especially in the village, from the kind of folk beat thing into the hippie thing, so their hair got a little, it wasn't just the black turtlenecks. You know, there was this transition, you would go from the white shirt and the tie, I mean, even Roy, when he was doing his pokey right. thing, right. the white shirt, the skinny guy. <laughs> and then it went to the black turtleneck period. Some people went to the Nehru collars. And suspenders. You know. and, but then you'd find, and then, you know, eventually you'd find whether you were a tie-dye person or a buckskin person or whatever period of dress that you felt like. This is you know. before Woodstock. <laughs> yeah, but he saw, I know you hung out at the Wa, and I think he might have done some artwork there, but... You know, I'm sure a lot of it had to do with a fatal dose of acid, right? as it did with everybody. <laughs> then sometime around 1968-69, he headed out west and ended up visiting his old friend Judy Frank in L.A. One thing led to another, and suddenly there was a chance for some movie work as an extra up in Oregon. He got to be friends with Mark, Richard's brother. He and Mark decided that they were going to go up to Oregon to be in Paint Your Wagon. So they were going to be extras. One of the people that lived in our neighborhood was a casting director, and he saw them both, and they both had beards and long hair, and they were perfect for the casting. Somehow, casting as extras in Paint Your Wagon led towards Northern California, and J.C. ended up in Elk, California, and the backwater of Mendocino. I first met John Chamberlain in late November of 1969, we had just moved uh, out to California from New York, and it was with my then-husband, Roy Michaels of Catmother, and our daughter, Shaughness, who was a baby. Uh, we had just come out to Mendocino because somebody said you could find a farm for 50 bucks a month. I am still looking. Anyway, <laughs> we camped on the headlines, and we woke up the next morning and drove into this picturesque little town and found ourselves in the old CEO, sat down and had some... Well, really good breakfast. And there was a funny guy sitting across the table across the aisle from us, just doodling on napkins, just really intense. And I thought, curious, interesting guy. Didn't think much about it. Later that evening, I saw him again. And that's when I officially, we officially met John in, in the house of Paul and Vivian Johnson on Albion Ridge Road. Uh, somebody had directed us to Paul and Viv because they knew everything about Mendocino. And if you were looking for a place to live or what the story was, they'd have the answer. And when we walked into that house, uh, in the back of the house, there were two guys, long hairs and beards, uh, playing this wonderful acoustic music. It was like dueling guitars. And they were, they called themselves the Hepcats. And one of them was John Chamberlain. 
and he became a fixture in my life and will be forever my brother. You know, Elk, as we know, Elk is a small town. Um, Slim Crane, who was the constable of the town, said, you may think of Elk as quiet, but it's really just exhausted <laughs> because it was a huge logging town in its heyday. And what remained, what the few houses that remained that were dangled off the cliff uh, were inhabited by a, a bunch of hipsters. Well, I wouldn't say hipsters, that's different now. Hippies, freaks, whatever we call ourselves. When I was just a little boy, you know my one and only joy was listening to that good old rock and roll. We moved down to Elk and John moved down there. And we lived in various houses at various times. But at one point, Gloria and Shaughness and I lived in this little house next to the old hospital where we had also lived. John was living in the compound, we called it. And there were these series of old loggers' cabins that were literally on the cliffs, and John was in one of them. And in Elk, there wasn't much to do, so the big deal was to go to the post office and the store. But you didn't want to crowd it all into one trip, so you know, <laughs> you'd make it in two trips. So you'd go to the post office in the morning, take your mail, and go home. And then you'd walk down to the store. So John, in the afternoon, would always walk down to the store, get his package of English muffins, stop back in on his way back, and I'd always be cooking dinner, and I'd say, what's up, John? And he said, oh, just went to the store. And I said, okay, so maybe, maybe I can come back later and play some music. And Roy would go, okay. And he said, well, I'll, I'll just take my muffins home. And okay. <laughs> You know, and about a half an hour later, he'd show up. With a bowl. You know, and we, just as we were sitting down to eat, and I'd say, are you hungry? Well, I just ate. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that was the routine every night. And then he and Roy would sit down and play music together for hours while I did the dishes. It was, it was wonderful. It was like having a concert. In the house. Kathy O'Grady had met John a few months earlier. So I was working at a shop at the end of Main Street called Accelerated Research. And it was one of the very first hippie type little shops. And I had come up to Mendocino January 18th, 1969. And a few months later, I realized that I was pregnant. Uh, however, I had also split up with the father of my son. Meanwhile, I got a little very part-time job at this little shop down at the end of Main Street. There was a nice big countertop where the cash register was. And this guy came in. He hung around for a while. He had a full long beard and long hair. And he looked like something out of a Western he was, you know, kind of wandering around looking at stuff. And that was back in the days when we were all still slow. So he would chat a little bit and his eyes got kind of wider and wider. And I realized that he was actually paying a lot of attention to me, which didn't impress me at all. <laughs> so then he wanted to see something. So I came around from behind the counter and I was like four and a half, five months pregnant. And this was a big shock for him because he hadn't seen my big belly. But he didn't leave. He still kept hanging around. So, you know, we would run into each other and then we ran in, into each other again. We for, oh, easily five years, we were 
partners and then we weren't. And then we were hanging out and then we weren't. And we kind of went back and forth for quite a while. We started living together. Judy Frank coincidentally showed up in Mendocino right around then as well. So I went into town to see if I could find a place to rent, and all the real estate people laughed at me. But uh, there was John leaning up against the fence of the pie wagon. And he says, well, I wondered when you'd get here. And God, I couldn't believe it. It was like family right there, you know. And it's like I had never even heard of this place, let alone knew. I mean, I never knew I'd be living here, but I did love it. It was beautiful. Same with Nick Wilson, who came from Austin, Texas, by way of Berkeley. The very next day in the morning, I drove into Mendocino, and I saw a truck that belonged to Charlie Pritchard, a, a musician friend of mine from Austin who had become, unbeknownst to me, the lead guitar player with Catmother. I started to write him a note. He walked up and said, hey, man, come on, we're about to have lunch. And they, at the time, had what was called the Mendocino Playhouse. Later, for a long time, it was a highlight gallery before they moved to where they are now, the previous highlight gallery. It's a three-story building right next to Dick's place. I go in, and there's this long table with probably, I don't know, at least a dozen and a half people in it. It was all of the members of Catmother and their wives, girlfriends, children, hangers-on, crew, whatever. (laughs) But a whole bunch of people all sitting at one long table to have lunch. And Chamberlain was there among them. But John and I soon connected. We found we were both Virgos. In fact, I was born September 1st, 41, and he was born September 8th, 41. So I was like his big brother from another mother. But we were just close pals. Lee Larson White, who later co-founded the local performing venue Toad Hall, was another friend who met John around this time. I met John in probably... February or March of 1969. And in those days, we uh, went around to each other's houses and introduced each other to people who were visiting who we liked. But somebody brought John Chamberlain over to my house. And I was very pregnant with my son, who was who was born on April 15th of 1969. And John was one of the most personable people I ever met. You know, he was quiet and gentle. And it's just Amazing. One of my earliest memories of John is that I was right after my son was born. I mean, it was my first trip to town. I was walking through Mendoza's and he came behind me and said, still waiting, huh? And of course, you know, I had this baby in my arms and I turned around and he went, oh, never mind. (laughs) You darn hippies, I said. But anyway, that, that was how we met. And then pretty much from that point forward whenever we had a a party or whatever you know John came and was part of our circle. Greg Hillman remembers John being involved in all sorts of music in almost every venue. I I briefly managed a restaurant uh, it was a kind of a beer place also and and uh, people tried to talk me into having evening entertainment so I talked to John and John was like Right there, Monday night, every Monday night, John would be there. And he packed the place. (laughs) We did more business at night than we did all day with food. It was incredible. He was a great draw. All I know is he played every stage in Mendocino. He played the hotel. He played the Foghorn. He played Slades. He played the cellar bar. He played everywhere that you could. (laughs) And with everybody. And with everybody, right. John did the cover art for the Cat Mother album's Albion Doo-Wop, 
Cat Mother, and Last Chance Dance, and played with the band on the last two. This was an era of outdoor boogies, with J.C. playing with Cat Mother and other bands in the middle of all of it. Richard Feenborough remembers those happenings quite well. He was very much the sideman. Excellent guitar player. He was in Casper Flats, Jug Band. I mean, all, all those classic scenes. I mean, we're all old now, you know. We're all approaching 70 years old. And, and, and so there's this kind of, the times resonate when we were in our early 20s and there was a, a, a beat up, large flatbed truck with with a lineup of seven eight nine ten fifteen people perched on it and jc was always in there with his big beard and his silver mandolin and playing just whatever he would he would play one thing about jc is he just wanted to play and he played a lot and he was kind of the consummate sideman in a lot of ways claudia page drummer and musician in mendocino the first time I met John, I remember probably was at my house. I just remember this man with an infectious smile and long, long, long hair. And I was a kid. I was maybe I was I can't remember. Maybe I was eight. I had only been playing drums for just like a year or two. And I met John and I just remember uh, meeting him through Cat Mother, and they were living in front of our house on Main Street. And at that point, musicians kind of came and went anyway in our house. We were the house where everybody stopped by and had jams and had lots of food, you know, raised by a Jewish mama. And everybody was just kind of part of it. And when I met John as a kid, I just instantly felt seen and heard, but I felt seen. And then for many years, I would go to all of his shows and he would always take the time to, you know, say hello and encourage me to keep drumming. And then as I started getting older, now I'm 12 years old and I get my first gig and then I start performing as a young teen. You know, I would stand by the stage with my drumsticks and wait for the drummer to let me sit in. And I always felt that John was the most encouraging, sweetest man and had a style that wasn't just kind of a, a folk style. He just he had a groove about him and I just wanted to drum with him anytime he would let me drum. I wanted to play. And so I was lucky enough and I had the confidence to go up and say, can I sit in? And he often, even sometimes if other musicians would say, well, maybe why don't you just hang out and we'll let you know. But it was always John that said, let's bring her up. She's great. She's, you know, this really great drummer at 13, 14. Yes, she can totally sit in with a band. So when I think of John, I think of that infectious smile, everybody that knows him, those glistening eyes and and again, when I first met him, just that long, beautiful hair. Baby's upset, fell in love and she got wet. Now the man that you love, don't you know that he walked away? And now she feels bad, you know she feels like she's been Heart breaks, 
The Mendo Coast music scene was indeed booming with a variety of outdoor boogies and lots of happenings. JC was doing posters and gigging regularly with Cat Mother and various other groups. Kathy O'Grady remembers those early days. I was definitely a Cat Mother groupie. And I considered myself part of the Catmother clique just because I absolutely adored them. The first time I saw them play was the first time myself and my really good friend Lee Larson White, we went to a concert with a light show at what used to be the Casper Free School, which is the next building just north of the Catholic Church. And I had never been to anything like this. So we walked in. It's dark. There's just these flashing lights and this incredible rock and roll. And rock and roll played on an organ by Bob Smith. And the whole thing just completely hooked me. And so I hung around with the cat mother for years. And so, you know, some of my best friends still are cat mother folks. And it was pretty amazing. Pretty amazing life. Louis Callas followed his sister Ellen out to the coast in the early 1970s with a powerful desire to play rock and roll. Probably 73, me and my friends took over a house in downtown Elk that uh, Ellen and Roy had been living in. We were a band and we played every night in our living room and John heard us because John was also living in Elk at the compound. And uh, one day he came over and knocked on the door and said, you know, Louie, listen, I'm playing music with this guy, Mark Levine, and we're playing at the Uncommon Good at the UGG in Mendocino. And Roy used to play bass for us, but Roy has moved to San Francisco, so we need a bass player. So come on. That's actually when I first started interacting with John one on one. You know, that was my first night with the review went to the UG, met Mark Levine as we were setting up on stage. The repertoire was something that I'd never really dealt with before. Uh, you know, it's like songs out of the 40s, Hoagie Carmichael's, you know, Slow Boat to China, Nearness of You, But Not For Me. And then that with a mixture of a couple of Mark's originals and a bunch of just jug band country mishmash of stuff. So we set up to play and John leans over and he goes, don't worry, I'll feed you the chords. So I said, great. So I'm sitting there listening to John and he's like leaning over. He goes, okay, D minor. Okay, A major. You know, I'm just like feeding me the chords and I'm having this terrible time because whatever I'm playing is not sounding right. So we struggled through like a half hour of that. And I was just, I was ready to pack up and go home and took a break. And Mark comes over and he goes, you know, I just want you to realize that John's not playing in the same key that we are that he's playing the mandola, which is tuned a fourth down from the guitar. So John transposes it before it gets to the mandola. So he's feeding me the chords in the key, the fourth below. And it was just like, okay, <laughs> John didn't realize it, you know, so, it's, you know, Mark would be playing a C, John would be playing a G, and he'd be telling me G, and I'm like, oh, okay. After that... <laughs> We actually uh, started working out, and they liked what I did, oddly enough. We actually started rehearsing together, and we rehearsed uh, and then started doing gigs. We did a bunch of gigs at the UG, and then we were looking for a place to play, and there really was no place at that point. (laughs) 
Every day I was living in Elk and Mark Levine would drive by on the way to rehearsal and point out Navarro by the sea. And he kept going, what's going on with that place? What's going on with that place? We told him that Bobby Beacon and, you know, the whole story of how he got it. Mark and Dan Furpo and a couple of other, and Michael Equin and, you know, JC approached Bobby with the idea of, we need a place to play. You got a place to play. Why not just open it up? Sure enough, Bobby goes, oh, great idea. So he opens up Navarro by the Sea, basically it had been abandoned and left there for a while, cleaned it up, and then we started doing gigs there. And the Mark Levine Review was like the house band for the first year almost, you know, we would play almost every weekend. The band kind of grew. It was JC playing the steel mandola, Davis Tissell playing saxophone, Michael Equin playing drums, me playing bass, and we turned into a dance band. It was the only place to play, so people used to come from Point Arena and Fort Bragg. they meet at Navarro by the Sea, and we'd have these outrageous times out there in the middle of nowhere. Meanwhile, John was pumping out posters for Catmother and a variety of other bands as well. Nick Wilson. I know that the the first poster that John did for Catmother, I wish I had it open in front of me right now. I just looked at it the other day, but it shows this big old funky truck, like a, a flatbed truck like they would use for a stage in the early days. It was driving up the highway toward the viewer. In the background was a New York skyline, New York City, and it said, Catmother and the all-night newsboys from New York and playing at Eagles Hall, Fort Bragg. Pretty sure that was the first poster for them. And it was uh, early, it was either New Year's Eve, 69, 70, or, or into 1970. I'm not sure. I'd have to check the date. Lee Larson White. John had been playing his music for a while. Toad Hall opened in 1973. I think that John was one of the biggest influences for me to get involved with an open food hall. He played with everybody. He played with Cat Mother. He played with Mark Levine. He played with a lot of people. To me, he was like the musical heart of what was going on in Mendocino. And at that time, I believe music was going to change the world. And, and maybe it did. There was my friend Donna Brown who owned the building and the property and myself. And we formed a business and the business rented the building from her. So it was basically me and Donna. Donna was an artist and Donna loved movies. So Donna took Toad Hall to be a place where she could display art and a place where she could show movies once a week. And I was a music freak. You know, I took it on to bring the music in and it was unbelievable what happened to the music. The, the building was quite large. It would hold about 200 people. And there were any number of times that we filled it plus. But we had big names there. I mean, we had Booker T of Booker T and the MGs. We had Maria Maldar. Bonnie Raitt would sit in with John Lee Hooker and once with Bo Diddley. Now for our audience, you know, if you didn't live in the 70s, you maybe never heard of any of those people except maybe Bonnie. But Toad Hall became known for being on the music circuit. I had one band that was made up of all the Jamaican studio musicians and they called me 
because Taj Mahal's band had told them that it was okay if they didn't speak particularly good English and maybe we would allow them to roast a goat on the property because it was New Year's. You know, it was that kind of place. John played regularly with Franny Leopold in a variety of bands. He would sit in, and I think Roy Michaels would sit in more. Mm -hmm. Um, But later on, I had a band called the Sourdough Loafers. (laughs) That's a triple entendre, right? Yes, it's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And he played with that band some. But mostly we were the duo Mm -hmm. um, for the horsey gigs. And, um, and we were a trio with Lenny Lax as well. Both of us are inveterate pot smokers. So, you know, after a gig, uh, you know, at the hotel, we would do our hour for the, for the trek, the horse trek people. And we'd walk across the street, you know, and look out over the ocean and light up. And so, and that was just like, okay, we did our job, you know, we're gonna reward ourselves, so. That's one little thing that I really remember. And then just kind of, you know, debriefing the show and what was good and and, um, what worked and what didn't work and all that. J.C. also helped Richard Feenborough feel accepted into the Mendocino music scene. I remember when I first arrived in Mendo, I just wanted to be on stage and I just wanted to be playing. And I I know I can play with these guys. I want to play with these guys. And it was such a highlight for me because JC being so easygoing and Bob Smith being so easygoing, when they finally invited me to come up on stage with them at the Casper Inn, it was just, oh, this is it. I'm finally part of the club here. I'm, uh, I'm playing with the band. And JC would be, you know, towards the back of the stage a bit. And he's like, okay, we're, and would, you know, show the changes and, and, and what was going on. So he was, he was always a very easy guy to work with. There was never, um, you know, not, not a lot of ego with JC. He just wanted to make music and play and, and make something. And, and I, as far as I can tell, that's, that's what he did. JC arrived here a classically educated and long-experienced graphic artist comic maker. He was not just influential in the burgeoning music scene of the 1970s and 80s in Mendocino, he gave definition to the visual background of the era. Steve Weingarten gives us his recollections of when he arrived fresh out of art school in the mid-70s. I got here in August of 1974, fresh off the truck or something like that, and I remember going down to the Greenwood Pier in Elk, for breakfast and I remember meeting him although he wasn't there but his work was and I I remember this and it was it was like Oz or something like that and he had a number of posters up John at the time more or less owned the visuals in Elk from signs that he did from posters that he did he he was living there at the time where he would be uh, people caught on what he could do and so what I got from him was this beautiful, almost idyllic visual of what it was like to be in the country and to be counterculture kind of in the country. You know, there's there are these guys with these plaid shirts on and they had these stocking caps on and they had ponytails and big mustaches and they were walking around and the beautiful countryside in the background. So this was, what I got from John initially was his interpretation or what he gave to us as a visual for where we were. You know, there were were the posters as well as signage in a couple little shops in in Elk. And it was like, oh, 
you know, like, oh, I'm home. And he connected with lots of other artists, like Bob Ross, who had come here in the late 1960s. Yeah, we had a, a poster show together. You can see that cereal box. It says Coast Posties. This was one of the posters for uh, our joint poster show. And we were out in my old barn studio and uh, we were kind of just drawing posters. And he just like whipped out this cereal box that was exactly on the model of Post Toasties. It was dazzling. John's ability to express the spirit of the time artistically was fairly unique. When I first came up here in the late 1970s, I thought J.C. fit into the underground comic scene from San Francisco and New York, sort of a variation on the art crumb and furry freak style, then all the rage in underground comics. Ross and Weingarten added further perspective. I never associated John with underground comics. John did some comics. But uh, his style was so personal. It always seemed to me that uh, the main reference for his style of drawing, I thought the number one reference was Walt Kelly's Pogo. It had that fluid, generous, upbeat, positive, charming joy that Pogo had. But I could also see the influence of like uh, some of the World War II cartoons of Bill Malden, that was in there. I, I'm sure he had scores, if not hundreds of influences because his work was so intelligent, it was so informed. I knew he was an appreciator. I think you could look for connections, say, between the fabulous furry freak brothers and the guy with the big hat and the big nose and, and the mustache and his head is as big as his body. But at the same time, after a while, you could spot a Chamberlain from across the parking lot. That's a Chamberlain right there. In the same way, you walk into a room and it's like, ah, oh, that's a Matisse. Uh, that's... That's a Picasso. Oh, look at the light there. That's got to be a Rembrandt. And so I became more familiar with these other cartoonists more down the road. But John had already kind of imprinted himself on me as of this area. And he'd done it so strongly and so warmly and so beautifully that uh, it kind of didn't leave a lot of room for cross-pollination. He was Chamberlain by capital C. There was really nobody else whose work I've ever seen that is really like John's. He mapped out a territory. In his posters, he'd have like, for boogies, he'd have show dancing crowds, many figures, or in his uh, comic strips, he'd have these hippie, semi-beatnik exchanges. All of it super good-natured, positive. It's like underneath all of his work, his posters, his signs, was a kind of a vision of the area as kind of socially cooperative and just out for good times. There was a real kindness and grace in all of his work. 
even his straightest signs for a, a, a plumbing shop or sheet metal or something had real, real grace and personality, never institutional. It's always uh, personal. Nick Wilson remembers the sort of quiet professionalism of J.C.'s graphic artwork. So John would do his originals on a drawing board and they would have guidelines and light blue tape, light blue pencil that the camera wouldn't pick up and all kind of the traditional graphic arts style of making the creation and laying it out. But he never ever used any type for the text or the headlines except what he drew himself. That was outstanding and he had so many styles and yet you could see this stuff after if you knew him and knew his style you could just see a a random piece of something and say that's john chamberlain's lettering i'd know it anywhere you know not to mention this style of drawing people judy frank and ellen callis remember that wackily unique sense of humor he had such a great sense of humor and was able to translate that into his little beatnik guy, who was the one with the black, you know, all in black. He just really uh, was able to pull it off on his signage when he would be advertising a band or something. He always would, you know, like the rumors you heard. <laughs> I don't know whether you ever saw any of those signs, but he always understood that uh, we have to laugh because... Everything was so damn serious outside of this place. We definitely got a good laugh from all of his posters. Everybody started ripping them down. He had to start printing them because they they never lasted more than about 10 minutes on a wall anywhere before people would take them down. And he knew it, and he didn't care. He just started printing them out on the Xerox machine. If you look at all those albums and the way he would draw people, he had this really almost cartoonish sense. I mean, he was really (laughs) clearly a fine artist. So you'd see these beautiful paintings that he could do that were just so pristine. And then you'd see these kind of characterizations of different people. But his ability to even make fun of himself, you know, his whole outdoor Bob character, (laughs) kind of like his alter ego, you know, the the little beatnik that showed up in all of his... uh, Right. There was Outdoor Bob, and then there was the Little Beatnik. And yeah. they were both kind of extensions of, of how he saw himself, too. Richard Feenborough remembers how those posters would stand out. Always these iconic posters for everything he did. And, and, and back, of course, in the 70s, that was one of the primary ways of letting anyone know what was going on anywhere, was there'd be posters and everyone would look at the posters and it was it was um it was an art form that you know unfortunately no longer seems to exist in physical form so much but for many years jc was that was it that's what he did lee larson white he made a five-foot toad for toad hall and mr toad which is of course what we dubbed him was out greeting people at the end of the driveway for Toad Hall for a while. And he was leaning on a sign that said Toad Hall. Well, the toad and and the sign were separate and people kept stealing the Toad Hall sign. So eventually we picked Mr. Toad up and put him inside Toad Hall behind the bar. I still have him. I mean, he's an amazing piece of artwork and John made him so that he would withstand the weather. So uh, he can be indoors or outdoors. Tell you. 
John played in a variety of bands, including with Roy Michaels, Louis Callas, and Peter White in the Greenwood Sidemen. They were always evolving and trying new things. Let's let Louis take it from here. The Greenwood Sidemen played for a long time. It was great. I mean, it was like a, a family get together. I mean, we were all really tight. We spent a lot of time together. Um, for the most part, we all lived in El. Peter lived in Albion. Uh, so it was good and you know that went on for a while and then uh, eventually uh, Peter White moved away and we decided to expand the band so we got Richie Rosenbaum to play drums with us Steve Davidson joined in on congas and cello Vec, who had been on the periphery of our music scene for a long time just started showing up to gigs you know he just kind of as he would say, crashed our party. And it was amazing, you know, we had a great time and, and that turned into Horse Bedorties. Once again, kind of organically formed. As the Sidemen kind of came to the end of the rope and we wanted to expand the sound, other people became available. Yeah, we got together and we actually started making the record before we named the band. We were all sitting, we made the, the record in uh, cabin one and two at, at the compound in Elk. John was living in cabin two, Roy was living in cabin one. So we turned one into the control room, ran the wires out of Roy's bathroom into John's kitchen window. And <laughs> then we used John's room for the actual studio. And as we were making the record, we were all sitting, because when you're recording, there's a lot of time sitting around waiting for your turn or stuff to happen. and. So there was a book called The Fan Man by William Kotzwinkel, but it was The Fan Man. And it was a pretty bizarre book. Uh, and the main character's name was Horace Bedortis. And he was a itinerant kind of crazed street musician in New York. The book was basically his adventures. So in the process of us making the record, we all read the book. So when it came time to, you know, we had this finished record, what do we call it? It wasn't the Greenwood Sidemen. And pretty much all at once, everybody just said, well, let's just be horse majorities. Hence the name. Another band John worked with was the Hit and Run Orc, the band that came to power Hit and Run Theater's musicals, the Arnold Vicious Punk Opera and Rockalypse in the early 1980s. Richard Feenborough. JC was connected with Hit and Run Theater with Kathy, and then we just kind of all melded together for this kind of intense couple of years where we just created this band, the Hit and Run Orc, which is a ton of fun because we came from pretty different backgrounds, really. And there's Margie Keyboards, had been in Mendo for many years, and, and JC also, and then uh, LJ and myself, and I had more of a kind of a Brit sensibility to it all. And then Louis uh, Dimitri, you know, Chicago boy, uh, along with Louis Callas, who of course had played with JC for many years already. And we just created this band just around this whole improv theater idea outside of that, because it was just a particularly fertile time for music and theater and improv and all kinds of performance in Mendo, especially, I think, from the very end of the 70s through the mid 80s was just um, many, many venues. But point being, we started playing as a band without a hit and run theater. We would do the occasional gig as a hit and run orc. 
as in O-R-C-H, and developed our own identity at that time. And it was just a lot of fun. We had our own identity, but we all brought the music that we played in other bands to that band. Louis Callis? Well, we had the star of the show. We had Richard Feenbop, who was playing Arnold Vicious, playing guitar. And J.C., Louis Dimitri, who was playing drums. Marjorie Chronic Shield was playing keyboards and singing. Lord Jean would come and sing. You know, we had all played together in various combinations anyway, but never all together in one spot. I remember when you guys were writing the show, we would all be set up at like Richard's house or Margie's and the phone would ring. And, you know, we would hear, OK, listen, we got a song. It's about a dope dealer or it's, it's the big stadium anthem or, you know, and you would describe the scene and hang up the phone and we would sit down and start like brainstorming about what we needed it to be. At first, it was kind of tricky, but after a while, just because of the familiarity of all of us and, you know, everybody being songwriters, you know, at one level or another, it really was easy to gel to the point we didn't want to stop. So after we got the music together for the show and we did the performances and stuff like that, I mean, we discovered we had a band and we all loved each other. You do all this work in your living room and you want to go out and perform it. Of course, Fiendbop had songs in his repertoire that were different. JC had some. Margie had tons of just wonderful songs. So we had enough to fill out a whole evenings of music. So we would do Arnold Vicious songs and then fill in with Margie and Fiendbop and, you know, JC would all take a, a turns at the microphone. So it just kind of evolved. I mean, nobody really even planned that. It just like happened. <laughs> Spontaneous combustion. You see you working as a roadie loading big black boxes and you never get enough sleep. Or maybe you're just some kind of VIP. Got a lot of appointments to keep. Well, I got three grades of cocaine. I got 22 kinds of speed. especially fun was through working with hit and run theater for example if we were playing the seagull which as you know was very much a venue at that time the upstairs cellar bar would be playing a song and we would ask the audience well what style do you want us to play this in? you know do you want it to be 
blues or country or ska or reggae or and then we would just take a song and we would um, we would play it in in that style and he was always game jc was always game he was just um always up for whatever we wanted to do and and, and and contributed to that also and for drumming teen phenom claudia page and her band jane jc gave further inspiration working with hit and run is when i first heard john chamberlain's song too stupid to live and we were just feeling like that song should be Jane's. I mean, how many years ago? Over 40 years. And I still remember the first verse, the brontosaurus thought that he could not fail. He had a brain in his head and a brain in his tail. And we're using what's left of him to run our automobiles. And our modern humans with complicated minds know how to blow up the world 300 times. And the cockroaches are going to get a chance to see how it feels. Too stupid to live. So we were just like, oh, my God, we have to have that song. So I remember like running all around town going, I'm going to find JC if we can play his song. And I mean, I just I remember him just being so endearing, almost like teary, like, oh, wow, the high school kids want to play my song. And we were going to, you know, play it much faster and we were going to punk it up. And it was music with a message. And still today, it's so, so relevant. It's so relevant of what we are doing to our world. So I just, oh boy, I just remember that was pretty amazing. Too stupid to love. 
Meanwhile, John just kept turning out great art and wonderful posters for all kinds of groups. Richard Feenborough. You know what works about a poster. And sometimes you see posters on the wall and there's 30 of them. And it's just like this big mess. But when you see a JC poster, your eye would go, first, there's a cool picture. Then you would immediately see who it was playing. And then you'd immediately see where it was they were playing. And then you'd see under that what time and how much. So the information just jumped right out at you in this very cool format of his unique drawing style, which I guess you'd say was crumb-like, but so much more benign than crumb. But he just had that ability to create characters. Steve Weingarten did sets and props for local improv group Hit and Run Theater for many years and found J.C.'s posters especially influential. Over a span of time, we who were part of Hit and Run had the good fortune of John basically doing all of our posters, including and starting with the Hit and Run logo itself, which was a joyous thing with sort of a round thing with lots of hands and legs sticking out in a party cap here and there, which became our icon. What would happen over time, John would do his poster, which he had to do before I did the set. I would pick up cues. I waited to see the poster before I even thought about what the set would be like. Then I thought, I know I could use this part and I could use that part. And then it'll be time for me to do the set, which in the day took about a couple of weeks. I would do sets and props, building and painting and getting them up. The paint was never dry by the time we were doing our first set. It was like opening up a book that points an arrow in this direction or that. Try this, try that. So I was sort of an after-the-fact collaborator with John for decades, literally, following his posters. Then there was that special set piece for 1986's Fiat Yucks that John was key to finishing. I had this idea, this was in the 80s when Ronald Reagan was president, that I would do this thing that would be a takeoff on the creation of Adam by Michelangelo, which is in the Sistine Chapel. And John came up with this line. He was always doing stuff with Latin. And the line was Fiat Yucks, which is translated loosely, let there be laughs. Anyway, so I had done this thing with Goofy as God uh, touching the finger of Reagan, who then was going to do whatever he was going to do. And Minnie and Mickey were there and Donald Duck and all these various Disney characters. And it was up in a cloud. It was going to be the centerpiece of the show. The show was opening the next night. Uh, finally, I had been after him for probably two weeks. Hey, John, could you come over and paint this thing? I've got this thing. And so I cut out the sign. And I painted it and I I made it more or less a paint by numbers thing, but I knew he was so much better than me that it would have been a shame for me to have to paint this thing. Because the problem is juxtaposed to John, well, I just didn't cut the mustard, really. It's Thursday night. The show opens on Friday. Uh, John's not around. I'm kind of pleading with him. John, do you think you please, please, please? Oh, yeah, I'll be over. Always, you know, I was the one who was agitated. John is, yeah, well, thing came up. Yeah, well, I'll get, you know, let me get back to you on that. So he shows up, and to my recollection, this is in the 80s, like 10 at night. He shows up with his brushes and his paints. I basically turned the bottom uh, story of my house into a studio for John to paint this thing. And I'd set up on sawhorses, and I have drawings that I've made, and I even drew out the thing. And he is sort of there, and he's like, ah, here we go. And so my recollection is that about 4 in the morning, he's done. 
And what he did, he just moved my characters around. Uh, the cloud was the wrong thing. This was close, but not quite. And he turned it into this beautiful thing that uh, I could not have approached it. And he never broke a sweat, but he was focused all the time. I sort of kept him going with whatever he needed. He would have a quip every now and then. Uh, it was sort of funny. And he, he left finally and the next morning. And I don't think the paint was dry. I take it off to Crown Hall and put it up, uh, like I hoped it had been a week before. And that's sort of that's sort of John in a nutshell too. He had his own time frame. He knew what he was supposed to do. He was fitting these very disparate parts of his life together, including music, including visuals, including last-minute jobs for people. I think most likely he was vastly underpaid in whatever it was he did. In addition to making art, both visually and musically, John Chamberlain spread good cheer during his many years in Mendocino. To put it in simple terms, John Chamberlain was quite a character. Judy Frank tells us about J.C.'s ideas for the Bicentennial back in 1976. Apparently, they involved an evil Knievel wannabe named Stupid Canoopid. He decided that what he was going to do was take over the whole headlands. And the headlands would have three Peterbilt trucks end to end with ramps at both ends. What we needed was a star, and we decided that we'd get Stupid Canoopit, who was the motorcycle driver of all time. And he would come up and he would jump all three of these Peterbilt trucks and uh, go down the ramp and land, and it would just be a spectacular. We'd have press from all over the world. And Mendocino would really be on the map in this case. And that was only one of a bunch of scams and schemes that John would come up with. He just had that kind of mind, but it was always, you could see the cartoon of it. As soon as he'd tell you the story, you could see what the cartoon would be. So he was, he was a whole lot of fun to hang out with. And then the obligatory John Chamberlain newspaper commentary. Lee Larson White. He would do this amazing thing in the mornings. He would have coffee and a newspaper and he would read the newspaper and he would pick out the headlines that were funny to him. And I never, ever would have seen those headlines. But when John read them, I got it. They were really funny, you know, and John had the ability to place that on the world, on our lives. It had a tremendously strong effect on me. In fact, you know, I think I'll pick John back up as a mentor because sometimes I forget to place that overview on the world that has the humor that John had, and I'd like to have it back. So John's sitting on my shoulder today to give me a little bit more of that humor again. And John had a knack for showing up for dinner just in time, especially when it came to Ellen's pastizzo. I used to make this dish called pastizzo, well, I still make it, which is a Greek dish, and John loved it. And then no matter when I made it, he always managed to show up for it, right? Just as it was coming out of the oven. So there was a period of time where we were living down in San Francisco because we had moved from Mendocino back to the city and then back again. We were living on 20th Street in the Mission, and I was making pastizzo. And I said, said, you know, this is usually the point where John shows up. 
and I'll be damned. The doorbell rang, and it was John in San Francisco, and it was like unbelievable. How do you know this? There's yeah. an album cover in there. Somewhere. Yeah, no, he just had a good sense. John was an early proponent of post-it notes, and Kathy would find many at his work table, and afterwards when she was going through his archives. Well, these are just some random ones that I had grabbed. This is a sign. This is a tiny little post-it. It's like one inch by two inches. And it says, curb your dogma. And then there's a little note on the corner that says sign. And then he says, for Franny Leopold. I'm going to save that one. This is a quote from a book. It's talking about the four lesser apocalyptical horsemen. This is the other four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the horsemen are panic, bewilderment, ignorance, and shouting. Here's one. And this is, this is a classic for all of us. I know it ain't good for me. I know it ain't right. But what else can you do in the middle of the night? Okay, here's one more. <laughs> okay. I'm a recovering melancholic myself, so I appreciate the blues. This is from Melancholics Anonymous. And here's one more. You might have to think about it for a minute. I don't understand. It just shouldn't be this hard to write a haiku. If you don't get it, listen again, rewind or whatever it is you're doing on your device and listen to it again and count the syllables. And there were a number of years in the 1990s when John moved to Kauai and played in bands and made posters there. Both Judy Frank and Franny Leopold and Peter Barg were frequent visitors. When he went to Kauai, mm-hmm. he became a Rexall Ranger over there, which was this band of outcasts that just were wonderful. But they played a lot of music, and they were always on call for all the restaurants and bars and weddings and so forth, bar mitzvahs, I don't know what else. But I had friends over there, and I went to Kauai every year. So John and I would see each other over there. I remember doing a gig with him when in Kauai. He had his studio was about a block and a half away from this coffee house, bar, restaurant. I remember him wheeling all the equipment over there, and we just played, you know, outside and um, with the sound. But he had all the sound equipment all together. Mm-hmm. I don't know how he could afford to do that, but mm-hmm. somehow he did. There is some uncertainty just how long J.C. spent on the island of Kauai, but sometime around the turn of the millennium, he was back in Mendocino and spent his last years here. He continued making posters and playing with a variety of bands. Shortly after his 70th birthday, his health began to deteriorate, but not his musicality. Two days before his death in 2013, he played with Franny Leopold, Peter Barg, and Los Cumbayeros for the Mendocino Film Festival. You know, he was amazing because he would come. We had lots of rehearsals. This was a big gig. We were in the big tent. It was a big deal. So we actually had rehearsals that he came to. And the, the last couple of weeks before the gig, he was just, we could see him just getting swollen and sick and not well, but he could still play like the Dickens. And... When we did the gig, the stage was about this high, and Peter had to lift him up onto the stage. He couldn't even make it on the stage. But he actually could still really play and muster lots of enthusiasm, too. 
the director of the film festival said that John died with his boots on because he, you know, he was performing two days before he died. Nick Wilson. I went to the funeral this year family put on not many people know that his family from ohio came out they had a funeral for him in fort bragg at the funeral home and they had a presbyterian minister whom i think was a friend of the family that came out to preside over the funeral and it was a little bit strange in a way but the people at the funeral and people were speaking up you know when it was time for people to share memories of john and what I got from his family was that they were amazed at how well loved and respected and what a you know local treasure John was because from their point of view they were pretty straight and they sort of considered him a black sheep that he had sort of like you know had just gone astray and gone out to California to become a hippie and waste his life or whatever not their words it's just my impression of what they said but i was talking i was talking with them and they were just they were so delighted to learn how well loved and respected john was and it changed their whole perception of him John's influence on the era, and on all of us, was immense. He was an extraordinarily generous human being, never seeming to ask enough for all that poster and sign work he did, and always willing to go the extra mile for local benefits for all kinds of causes. I was part of many political actions John was part of. He gave a huge amount of his time to the campaign against offshore oil, against clear-cutting of redwoods, against Reagan and Bush administration policies, and against just about anything politically short-sighted or cruel. But it was the little things of ordinary life that left the most lasting impressions. Claudia Page tells us what a generous musician John was. He was very rhythmic with his playing, and I always felt like I try to do this with my drumming, and maybe he he probably rubbed off on me as a kid, but I would hear him find the holes where to add the, the riff or the melody and then get out and then be able to come back in. And he almost played a string instrument like a drummer. It would seem to be not just bluegrass or folk or rock and roll. Um, It was almost reminded me of some of the African music I've listened to where um, you find the holes to play. There's a hole, no vocals or something, and you add a melodic little riff and here comes the vocals and you're out again. Uh, He did that with with Margie Crowninshield and many other artists in in Encino that I would hear him play. Even as a kid in Horse Bedorties and and other people, and even with Lenny and and Tony and Lamb and just everybody. So from that musician point of view, He seemed to be quite comfortable to be the rhythm, not have to be the focal point star, but he always shined and he was so rhythmic that you'd be like, oh, I'm getting into this riff that he's playing. That is so John Chamberlain. And then the vocals come in and you're wondering, is he going to stay there? No, he pulls out and then mutes a little bit and strums a little bit. And then, oh, here's a hole. And then he will do a riff. And there was that way he had of drawing a cartoon or some poster art that made us all feel part of both a local 
but far greater community. There were times that I felt, you know, especially after spending like several days with John in a row, that John really had the picture that we were all living inside a big comic book. He was quick to make caricatures of everybody and not in a mean way ever. Something would happen in, in real life and then suddenly two weeks later it shows up on a poster. Yeah, he would have these running gags that were like inside jokes for everybody in the community. You know, they always say that music is the soundtrack to our lives. Well, I think John was not only the soundtrack, but the illustration of a whole period and whole spirit. Mendocino. Yeah. He'd walk down the street and you could hear those tunes and the 4th of July parade before it became a Pepsi commercial. It was like the, the band was playing and John was always up there. But, you know, every single sign hanging in, right. you know, every single poster, every single ad in the Mendocino Beacon, or many of them, were all touched by him. And it was such a characteristic, he really illustrated a whole period of time and underscored it at the same time. You know, I mean, that's a rare talent to be able to do that. Well, John was one of those guys about whom it is said, we shan't see the likes of him again. He was practically living on air because he charged so little for his work. And he always lived extremely modestly. A lot of people have copies of his posters in their homes or in folders in their homes. I think those of us who knew him and recognized his vision of this community as being the finest vision, an emblematic vision of the way the new community, the counterculture influenced the whole development of this area. There was a way his posters and his signs spoke for us. So maybe it's not too woo-woo to say that the ways in which he validated our own senses of wit and grace and integrity, that that's had an additional kind of uh, radiation out into the community. That uh, there's some way that John's vision is still speaking through us. John and I, we were standing out on Highway 1, just on the north side of Elk. And it was in the spring, and across the road was a huge bunch of daffodils. And we had been picking the daffodils. And it wasn't cute, like running through the meadow with, you know, slow-motion hair stuff. We were just picking daffodils. And John was all kind of jazzed up about something. And I looked at him, and I said, you remind me of a hummingbird. That's just how he felt at that moment to me. And he got it. And he always had this quality of this, the hummingbird the vibrating in a very positive way, not jagged. Um, and one particular cartoon strip that I think we all of us who lived on the coast so related to, it was two guys in front of a pickup truck. And, and I think it was onward through the fog. And they're driving up some ridge in the fog and they're obviously completely stoned. I mean, they're very high. And they're driving for miles and miles and miles. And where are we going? And they're going further and further up this ridge and for hours and hours. And, of course, they get to where they're going. And it's like maybe three miles from the coast. But we've all had the experience 
living on ridges where you drive up and have I ever been here before? I know this is the road I live on, but I don't think I've ever been here before. And he did that in so many different situations, you know, if they're either political, social, musical events. He was uh, just a master of it. But you got the sense that he was living the life he wanted to live. It didn't take him a lot of money. He did his art and he did his music. And he did it basically up until the day he died. And then also, in classic kind of JC not making a mess, he died by pulling over to the side of the road, driving back from Santa Rosa, and essentially seems to me like parked the car and died, and that was it. And that was JC. He seemed to just do what he wanted to do, and didn't and it didn't take much to do it. I mean, he didn't have much money, but he, he made it all work anyway. He just did what he did. So I always respect that in in someone that that basically you know they managed to live the life they want to live. But I felt the seat today is what it cost And there's no trace of yesterday Ring around the sun There's no trace of tomorrow Today my life has just begun And there's no trace of yesterday Ring around the sun Thanks for joining us for our Snap Sessions tribute to John Chamberlain, who would have turned 80 this September 2021. We contacted many folks for this episode, and we interviewed Ellen Callis, Greg Hillman, Kathy O'Grady, Judy Frank, Nick Wilson, Lee Larson-White, Richard Feenborough, Claudia Page, Louis Callis, Franny Leopold, Steve Weingarten, and Bob Ross. We thank Ellen, Greg, Kathy, Judy, Nick, and Lee for giving us background on Mendo in the late 1960s and 1970s. Louis, Franny, Richard, and Claudia for giving us a lot of insights on JC's musical meanderings. And Bob Ross and Steve Weingarten for their perspectives on John's artistic contribution to the Mendocino Coast. We used a number of songs and excerpts of songs from John and his friends. These include, in the order they were used, Jump by Horse Bedortis, Cleveland by John Chamberlain with the Hit and Run Orc, Good Old Rock and Roll and Love Until Your Heart Breaks by Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys, Navarro by the Sea, Feels Like, Do Right, and Stealin' by the Mark Levine Review. Edge of the World by Horse Bedortis, Dope Dealer Song by the Hit and Run Orc from the Arnold Vicious Punk Opera, John Chamberlain's song Too Stupid to Live by the group Jane, The Nearness of You by the Mark Levine Review, Midnight Show by Horse Bedortis, and finally Ring Around the Sun by Lenny Lax with JC. Thanks to all the artists for the use of John's work. But it's day you live your life to grow it smaller. And a lifetime fear with teachings is a lifetime of abuse. And there's no chance of yesterday. Ring around the sun. No chance of tomorrow. Today my life has just begun. And there's no chance of yesterday. Ring around the sun. No chance of tomorrow.
If you enjoyed this episode of Snap Sessions, please consider supporting our work by becoming a patron at thesnapsessions.com or at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. You can also make a one-time contribution through PayPal to birdhaus at mcn.org. In the notes indicate it is for Snap Sessions. Thanks again for listening to our tribute to JC. Interviews and narration by Doug Nunn. Sound editing and narration by Ken Krause. Engineering and production by Marshall Brown. Onward through the Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link patreon.com forward slash snap sessions or through the link in the snap sessions website the snapsessions.com and also the link in our show notes thanks to our snapus maximus contributors ron hoxsprung and rick and henny newman and to our supportive snappers peter and sheila jowers kathy white dominie jowers and john bird gabriel geiger and christine samus Other contributors to Snap Sessions include Steve Weingarten and Cynthia Gare.